Hi, everyone, and welcome to INE Live. Today is Tech Tuesday. I'm Katherine Brown, Public Relations Director here at INE and your host this afternoon. We're streaming live across social media platforms from LinkedIn Live to Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, working to reach you where you are and deliver some awesome content and information that can help you and your team excel every day. We really want you to get involved during this stream. Ask your questions and your comments. We'll get to as many as we can. I already see a bunch coming in from various social media platforms. That's right, Charles, we see you there in Boston. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We uh, would love to hear your thoughts and your comments, so I'll be reading them out as we go along today. Today, we're drilling down on incident response, talking about why it's so important to prepare for incidents that may happen within a cloud environment and why the old playbooks are outdated and badly in need of an upgrade. We'll also take a look at some of the challenges that have arrived on scene since the mass migration to the cloud and some strategies for tackling those. With that, let's get to the introduction. Some great minds here today. We're joined by, first and foremost, INE's Director of Cybersecurity Content and no stranger to you guys, Jack Reedy, as well as Cybersecurity Instructor, Jason Alvarado, guys, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, definitely, thank you. Awesome, all right, so let's just jump right in here. First off, uh, Jack and I wanna start with you. What is incident response and why is it so important? Well, incident response, at least in this particular context is from a cyber perspective, the response to an actual incident, which I know is a roundabout way of saying the exact same thing. But what it is, is it's actually when an, when an event occurs that in some way, shape, happens or compromises security, it's the response mechanisms that take place to fix or correct um, and set the enterprise environment back or whatever environment back to the uh, normal baseline of operations. Now, it's extremely important to have this planned out ahead of time to save time because it, the longer that attacks go on, the more potential there is to lose information, control, um, comp and more systems can be compromised as well. Jason, I'd love to get your thoughts on, on uh, you know, why incident response is so critical to focus on. Well, it, it's almost like Jack said, I mean, you have to have some predetermined um, strategies to cover incident response because I like to use a lot of analogies. So uh, if we're going into incident response mode, we're kind of use like a fox in a hen house analogy. So, you know, we want to figure out how the fox got in. Is it still there? How do we get it out? And then what can we do to keep it from getting back in? Uh, so it's a lot to do for incident response. And it's really going to test all of your cybersecurity policies. All right, so with that, we've got what it is, why it's important. I want to move to what differentiates cloud incident response, because that's a very specific thing, right? What differentiates cloud incident response from standard templates and the frameworks that, that currently exist? I mean, Jason and I can go back and forth on this. The Basically, when you're talking cloud versus on-prem, on-prem, you have a lot more control of the configurations, the options available for logging. You have even the technology itself, whether or not it can be isolated, segmented, uh, pulled away from. And then also you have, you generally, if it's on-prem, you have more access in the form of if you can or cannot, or however you would like to segment that. The problem that you run into also is attacks, the types of attacks that you run into in the cloud, many of which are usually automated. The second that they can find some form of credentials or an exposed database, there's a lot of processors behind the work that are just pushing and pulling immediately, as opposed to whenever you get certain forms of malware or something like that, it requires some form of user interaction. Um, Jason, you want to expand on it a little bit more? 
you know, I think for most incident responders would say that there really isn't that big of a difference. Uh, you know, for, for a lot of us, it, it's, it's just uh, reviewing logs and reviewing digital images. But the key difference is, I think, the infrastructure that you're performing in and the fact that you that incident responders have to be so much more familiar with multiple cloud infrastructures and how and, and how you actually even do basic, simple IT functions within there. And, and I think that's the big key differentiator. The IT functionality. So with that, I mean, one of the things that I've always considered with it, whenever I've had response, you know, instances that have occurred in the cloud and, and actual considerations and back and forth was accessibility to logs. Now, while, you know, you can centralize it towards Amazon's um, within Amazon or within um, Azure, and you can actually have a, the entire backend, the issue that I normally run into is like web application logs and actually having to get in touch with the, you know, the developers or the administrators of whatever application for the on, if it's an actual instance, as opposed to just a process. Have you like experienced the same type of issues or problems? Yeah, I do, especially if you're talking, you know, if, if you're going into like infrastructure as a platform type things, um, when you're actually having developers develop using these cloud ar architecture tools, a lot of the logging is up to a developer to write versus if we're just using on-prem tools, you know, whether it's Microsoft or Linux or or some type of application, the developer has, has built that in. So, and, and I think this is something that you'll find when you do an incident response, you know, one of the key mitigations for the stuff you've made is, hey, we need to make more, we need to create more logging, you know? Yeah, there's um, this concept, I know, you, I know you're aware of it, but um, for the audience, there's this concept called transparency, where you have the capability of looking down to, you know, the lowest level of your architecture or whatever's operating um, for your business or your enterprise again. Uh, with that, and while the cloud does offer a lot of transparency on the back end. Some of the issues that you run into are, can you see all the way to the boundary or can you see all the way to where the external network is able to communicate to your data, your information or your processes and how those are handled? Another thing, Jason, I don't, um, I don't know if you can talk to this, but one of the things that I've also experienced in the cloud is the prevaliency of APIs. So the use of you know standardized processes and interaction with code in a, in a meaningful way but even that can start becoming abused and, you know, the backing can be compromised in that way. So uh, have you have you seen that before? You know, I think that's one of the key vulnerabilities we have in, in cloud applications. And it's uh, it's something we get into. And this is the problem with the cloud. It's, it's, it's a combination of every single type of information technology skill all in one application, because now we have to expect our developers to be security experts. We have to under we have to teach them to understand to not put things like API keys or secrets in, in GitHub or in a paste bin or in a text file on S3, um, you know, it, it, it's difficult. So, and, and, and that security education and awareness has expanded to, to teams that typically don't have to worry about those types of things. You know, it's also easier to make mistakes, you know, somebody with administrative permissions in, in say Amazon web services, they have permission to affect almost everything in there, whether it's your your VPCs or whether it's your um, your your virtual machines. So somebody that's not familiar with networking could make a network mistake and allow people in. Vice versa with operating systems. Absolutely. Um, so I, 
there's a kind a bit of a running it's not a running joke there are developers that exist but there's a term in development called full stack full stack development being able to write from you know the back end database all the way through the front you know to the front end experience and as well as the interactions between the sites and the um you know being able to engineer all of that you see uh more and more as we're moving towards the cloud the uh full stack security guru that's coming out you know what i see are full stack developers that are more educated in security and and quite honestly i think that's because <laughs> i think we all agree with this that they, they they've, de they've deviated from traditional um programming learning you know they're, they're not a lot of computer science majors they get very minimal uh security training usually they're they're involved in a training program that even like INE has offered or, or some other means that, that includes security as part of their education. Hey, I want to jump in here, guys, um, because Jason, you mentioned, uh, you know, the work environment, the uh, on-prem. I think actually you, you guys both mentioned this, but, um, you know, right now we're in a very uh, unique spot. And we have been for about the last year and a half or a little bit more, um, where a lot of people are working from home, working remotely. And there was kind of this rush to the cloud, right? There was this massive migration very quickly uh, out of necessity as much as anything. Um, so what are some major considerations regarding security and the attackers in those spaces? And, and what do teams really need to know and be focused on as they're considering this? You know, I think we were completely unprepared to migrate most of the workforce to the home. Um, a lot of the more forward thinking companies, you know, issue laptops to customers. I mean, there, for a while there, you couldn't buy a Dell laptop or a ThinkPad, you know, uh, when COVID was hitting. But but if there was companies that did not choose to invest in infrastructure like that, they were relying on their home users to utilize their laptops and desktops they have at home. And uh, and, and, you know, I, I did work incidents where where the, the hacker actually, you know, compromised a home user and then pivoted into a network and, and, and compromised systems that way, just using, uh, you know, Gmail phishing, you know, so I, I think that we massively opened up the, uh, the, the threat surface and it took a few months for people to start locking that down and securing it. And I think that's the, that's the great fear, right? Um, Jack is that these employees were kind of thrust into this with very little preparation from businesses, uh, which were, unprepared to uh, to Jason's point. And now we've fast forward a year and a half, there's been this scramble. Now a lot of companies are, you know, have invested in the cloud, multi-cloud, and they're still, it almost feels like a lot of places are still kind of struggling to keep up. They're still kind of behind the eight ball on this. Is that a fair assessment? Oh, very much so. I know um, even the company, I've, one of the companies I previously worked for, they were very, um, on the ball when it came to engineering and, and anticipating what the user's needs were, what the, you know, threat aspect would be. And even still, you know, as part of their team, and I had to do incidents that involved the cloud, I had to do incidents that involved home user instances where the computer was a company asset, but we're seeing, you know, activity that doesn't match. It turns out that their kid was jumping on while they were standing up and taking a break or whatever else. Like you see all sorts of stuff and then when you talk about from the cloud environment and trying to pick up these resources and these assets and rush, well, I mean, security is one of those things you don't want to. Now it was unfortunate and it was necessary, but that's one of the things now where we've been there for almost a little over a year, actually going on almost two now, might be time to take a step back, breathe, now all the fires are out, 
and start reviewing your instant response plan, start reviewing your instant response policies. Some of the things that I really highly suggest focusing on for engineers and those that are being pulled into these newer projects are the focus on automation, data portability, making sure that your data isn't just locked into a single instance provider or that you can access it in a, in a meaningful way, and also not building your business processes too stringently around just specific capabilities. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you're going to develop an application, make sure that you're not fully reliant on Amazon Linux versus, you know, something that can be offered with Azure so that way you don't become handcuffed later on when it's time to, if, if you, you know, you're still competitive involving business and functionality and things like that. And I'm sure Brooke Seahorn can talk a little bit more about that when he's on, but uh, from a total, total aspect as far as the backend engineers, yeah. Automating the process, centralizing the logs and make sure that they're, you know, uh, enabled and appropriately processing and being sent to the direct repository. That aren't public facing. <laughs> Jason, what about you? Same, same, same tips, or do you have uh, others, others to offer? Other very, areas that people can focus on, businesses particularly. Very similar. You know, twenty twenty really uh, took advantage of businesses that were not prepared, mm -hmm. so that they didn't. You know, you, you mentioned playbooks in your intro. Um, most of the cases I worked in 2020, these companies didn't even have playbooks. They didn't have an incident response plan. They, they hadn't even gone to things like two-factor or multi-factor authentication. And, 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 and in every one of those ways, it was basic cybersecurity practices that caused a breach. So yeah, as Jack said, it, it, it is time to really kick back and reflect on those things. And you know, if you don't, you don't have to have the most awesome cybersecurity policy or playbook but you have to start somewhere and you have to start writing something down and thinking about how you're going to work through these incidents. Jack, I want to, um, to, to get back to you. You were mentioning um, kind of some things that people can do that, that companies, teams, and individuals can do right now. Um, I want to put you, put you both on the spot, you know, for a second. Um, if, if there is one thing that is absolutely critical that someone who is watching or hearing about this can do, today, get the ball in motion today. What would you recommend that they, they do or at least they start doing, Jason? Specifically for the cloud. If you're using the root user account, you need to stop. You need to create your IAM or the right service principles or the right users that can use that account. AWS gets massively breached. If you don't already have security groups built up so you can rapidly isolate um, a virtual machine, you need to create one. These aren't things that are very difficult to do, but if you don't have them in place when an incident starts, then you're already kind of behind the eight ball. Yeah, I fully agree. Um, and identity management in the cloud is massive, 1000% massive, because if you provide full access to any single account, that will likely be the one that's, you know, compromised. And then they'll have full access to your entire, you know, whatever that they're working on or saving or however else uh, it's being utilized. I'm going to jump on that and also say that some of the things that between technicians versus vendors that you can look at is um, for the management level, ensure that you know who to contact, you understand the assets that are there, and you have some form of automation that involves or, you know, process that involves identity reset or credential, you know, session pulls, anything like that. If you ever suspect any form of compromise, uh, just pull the session 
you know, pull the identity and confirm first, because if you just allow access, they're just going to keep going. Automation is huge. Um, we are we're getting a lot of great questions in, so I just want to take a moment to thank our audience and everyone who's watching for getting in there, posting these comments, posting some questions. Um, you guys are okay, do I want to get to a couple questions from our audience? Yeah, anytime. Sure. Um, this is from Ibrahim Serchi, and it's a question for both of you guys. Um, can you get a remote job as a Linux administrator expert only? Yeah. Let's see why not. I mean, learn, learn RDP pretty well at SSH. Yeah, you should be fine. Yeah, fair. Yeah. Jake, all right, well, that was an easy one. That was an yeah. easy one. Okay, bring, bring your tougher <laughs> questions. Thank not, you for that. that. <laughs> not much to that one. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, most, I don't think I've met a Linux administrator yet that doesn't, you know, work from their desk and just constantly reach out and touch something. So, you know, why do you have to walk into a building for that job? Great. And okay. I would say that just with the current job market environment, now is the time to be looking and asking for remote only positions. Okay, so on that, I'm going to I'm going to pivot to another question that's uh, from a different user, but it is related. And it gets back to your earlier points about security and employees working from home. And uh, it's a question from a LinkedIn user. Should it be up to our employer to provide us with a secure network solution for our home? And I'm going to tack on to that. If no, what are some security uh, solutions that a company should be responsible for? Yes and no. It just depends on how the architecture is set up to where you access the data and process it. If you're doing so from local on a you know company-issued laptop, then yes, I think a VPN is only smart unless you have some form of browser-based you know, access that you're uploading and downloading stuff. Realistically, you should be running AV, EDR, or some form of a solution that involves monitoring if you are on a business computer. If you're on a personal computer, it is highly recommended that you work in things like, you know, provisions, for example, Google's, uh, the Google Suite or even Microsoft Suite in the cloud, the 365 options. So that way you're working less from on, you know, local and you're working actually within the actual cloud environment, which will up limit access and you're using, you know, secure connections anyway, as far as in your home itself, like let's say one of your kids jailbroke something and got it compromised. Should the company be providing, you know, protection? And you have to consider is that if the company provides protection, they also provide monitoring. You really want your company monitoring what you're doing on the that from your own network? That's a very good point, Jack, and one that I think probably, um, you know, a lot of people may 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 fail to consider is that with that security comes a certain level of, uh, to your point, of, of of monitoring. Jason, what are your thoughts on this? Should should companies um, have to have to provide security, and and if not, should they install security on? Should you know they be responsible for installing security on devices or firewalls, that sort of thing? You know, I. I... The way I'm going to go at this is I think it's a company's responsibility to secure their networks. And and in a sense, with, with working from home, they've extended their networks to an employee's home. Um, what you're going to run into, I, th I think I think that businesses would, sh would and should either provide um, a laptop or a desktop that's already been secured for the employee. So all they have to do is, is open it up and, and go to work or at least provide some secure um, remote functionality 
like a remote desktop into company resources or into a cloud resource. I just, from a risk perspective, and and that's what a lot of incident response is, it you can't really trust what's on a user's personal equipment unless they consent to, as we just talked about, you know, being observed and monitored more. And do I want, do I want as an employee, do I want my employer to, to see everything I do in my on my personal systems. Yeah, one, one of uh, another LinkedIn user just just commented, there's no company in the universe that will cover an employee's teenager on their network, which is a great point as companies are considering what they're covering. They're also, I suppose, have to be considering the vulnerabilities that they're opening themselves up to when you've got you know families, kids, teenagers. Uh, I have two six-year-olds and a 10-year-old at home. So I, I, I always log out, you know, because <laughs> they, they love nothing more than to like play with the computer, but um, you know that, that's a great point that, that both of you make. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't at this point interject and say, you know, in addition to the security and the firewalls and the, and the physical security, how much of a responsibility does a company have to provide cybersecurity awareness training to all of its employees, not just you know the IT crowd or, or whatever, but but all of its employees, whether they're remote or not. I think it's a must, you know, and that's and when I when I do an incident response, I always have a, a recommendation section. I have yet to do an incident response report that the number one recommendation is not increase your, your security awareness training to your employees. Um, and if you think that you're doing it, then you need to find ways to test your security awareness. So there's always room for improvement there. Yeah, I, I fully agree. Security awareness training is a must. Um, actually, I would consider that to be a higher priority than securing know the home network or something like that um you know if even even if you ran statistically just take a look at the statistics on a thousand people if you had 98 percent positive feedback from security training and you still have two percent uh, which is a large enough gap that you know you can have still a mess up and keep in mind that when we do instant response when we do uh tickets and we look at the events and we look at the logs and everything like that there is a scale as to how bad these attacks are. You can run into simple, you know, a really bad, poor email-based scam attempts like, hey, I've tried to lock your computer. I have all this webcam info. Here's Bitcoin, send to Bitcoin. And it's just a text file because they're just trying to scare you into sending free money versus you can have something that is actually advanced, has been associated previously with an APT um, event, that is connecting to command and control servers through the Tor network. And, you know, not every click is the same. So you still have to, you know, teach users that if you don't trust it, here's where you send it to inspect it. And Jason, you uh, you concur with, with that, that all employees should have to do this, that it should be a company's responsibility? Or, you know, what are your thoughts? You know, I, I think employees have to go through their security training. Um, I think that they have to take it seriously. I've seen it more and more beco becoming serious with the employees. Um, if, if you are in a security department, you'll know shortly after employees have taken that security training because you'll start getting questions. You'll start seeing increased uh, phone activity where they're verifying attachments. You'll, you'll start seeing people uh, click the, uh, the fish me button in, in Outlook or their other email programs. So uh, I do think that you know, we're making traction there, I think. Yeah, awareness is, is, 
if not half the battle, uh, maybe maybe a little more or a little less. You gotta you gotta stay on your toes. I'm still getting some great questions in from our audience. Again, want to thank you. I have a great question from Christopher Frazier. Um, with the new OWASP top 10, do you believe the new number one broken access control had a big input due to the response from the cloud? Uh, yes, I really do feel that that was important. It's very similar to. Um, it goes right along hand with identity management. Your access to your assets, your access to your processes, your access to everything is one of the biggest priorities in the cloud. And I think that that's where that really stemmed from. Um, I think they're starting to realize that if they go back to the basics and appropriately segment out, you know, access based on roles and responsibilities, that they're going to mitigate, even if an attack or a breach does occur, they're going to mitigate the actual effects. Jason, yeah, you want to weigh I, in? Yeah. No, I agree 100%. Um, you know, this is interesting to me because, you know, OWASP top 10 has remained pretty static for like the last 15 years. It really so, has. Yeah. So to see something breach in there, new, um, and this isn't new, of course, but I think, you know, with cloud, you know, thinking about, um, you know, least privilege access and and moving into, uh, you know, PAM solutions for the, for the users, you know, everything cloud oriented is around access controls. Do you think it's important nowadays to, so with that, I mean, we have so much of our access control nowadays that are third party, they're, you know, as a service provided, things like that. What type of, have you had any instance that involved the third parties, any, because I can't, I'm trying to think of some, and I can think of a little abuse here and there, but I haven't really ever ran into somebody in whole, like really taking something that they shouldn't have had access to and going, you know, wild with it. I, I see the same problems that we have everywhere mm -hmm. else. I mean, and I don't want to pick on any vendors, you know, but but anywhere you put <laughs> yeah. your credentials into and then you log into that vendor, you're kind of just, you're creating the same problem, you know, maybe with mm -hmm. a little bit more, more access management. Um, I think some of the third party providers that provide more insight into what you're doing, um, I, I guess I will throw a vendor out there like CyberArk, you know, where you can actually and then you can limit even beyond what a role does with the, I think, I think those are incredibly valuable. Yeah. I think one of the biggest things I look for in the third party preventer or third party providers. Wow. Uh, is, is, uh, being able to even just account for what your users are doing. So when they log in, do you, do we, as you know, the administrators have an activity log, but what changes were made that are, what are, what are they, you know, reaching out and touching? Yeah. I mean, even logging for, you know, we're paying for a service, but if something was to go wrong where our all of our data gets leaked all of a sudden, who's the last to have touched it, right? It becomes very difficult to see in some instances, some providers. Yeah, and then making sure those third-party vendors, um, that, they, that their security policies are either replicate your own or they exceed them. You, you know, I mean, especially if you're in a regulated industry, I mean, you still have a responsibility to vet your vendors. Yeah, I think, I think with that too, even being able to centralize the logs, shift the logs to, you know, what, what is the gold standard, a centralized repository for the IR or the SOC team to take a look at. Mm -hmm. And I will say cloud makes it easier. AWS and Azure both make it easier to do that. Very much so, very much. I got a great question from Kevin coming in. Uh, Kevin's watching on YouTube. Thank you, Kevin. He says, uh, what is the top skill set that an incident responder absolutely must have in order to be successful? You got some good answers here. Ooh, you want to go first, Jack, or you want me to? Yeah, sure. Um, 
Who wants the hot seat? So skill set for the skill set, it's not, I, I don't like to call it a skill set, but you have to have passion. You really have to have passion for technology. I mean, that means that whatever is new, you can't just throw your hands up and be like, I don't know that, uh, you know, and turn and walk away and the, you know, that, and you pass the buck off to somebody else. You have to be passionate enough to go and start reading the manuals and learning about that technology. Where are the logs located? Uh, one of the first times that I taught somebody how to do instant response was, you know, IT administrators that wanted to come and do the job and, and be a part of security. And we intentionally set up a scenario where, you know, the uh, chief basically played the bad guy and went in and made a bunch of announcements on a chat box. And I started off with the scenario with him. I was like, so what happened? And they're like, well, we got this chat at this time. Cool. So where are the logs for it? What logs? Well, what, you know, logs exist for this, likely. It's a chat, you know, it's a chat feature. And then I started walking him through, like, how to go and search where the logs are even kept, what type of log configurations there are, and, you know, basically how to Google find a manual and then read what the manual was. And they were like, I never thought to do that. And it seems like a really weird skill set to have to be able to do research or to be able to want to do research. It's, it's very important. That's a great point. Uh, I'm laughing over here. Michael, from who's watching on YouTube, says a, a critical skill set is a good response time, which is probably also <laughs> equally important, right? Uh, Jason, yeah. what, what are your thoughts? Critical skill set when it comes to being an incident responder? You know, and Jack kind of covered some technical skills. You know what? I, I'm going to go with um, off the top of my head, communication skills at least the ability to build into them. Mm -hmm. uh, as an incident responder, especially if you're gonna go into like a consulting, which is where most of incident response is, you could have to talk to a technical team and you can talk technical with them, but you're also going to have to explain all that to a CISO mm -hmm. or even a CEO or a board or a lawyer. And and they use a different language. And so you have to you have to find a way to learn that language and talk to them that way. And then, you know, writing skills. Yeah, you're as an instant responder, you're going to have to have an you're going to have an opportunity to write some, you know, really, really technical stuff. But you're also going to have to be able to write something at a business level to explain it. You know, beyond that, um, you know, I, th I think working in a SOC is a great place to start because you start learning log analysis and you start learning uh, common uh, threat indicators. But then uh, what I see the biggest gap in right now in the security industry is uh, is uh, Linux admin skills and windows admin skills and le learning the why that mm. these things happen yeah even even being that person in the sock i found because i'd previously been you know both a network and server administrator when i started getting into security being the person that sat in the sock and being able to say oh this is actually a common thing that you know administrators will do to bypass security controls i know i've been the one to do it and you know then slap their hand for it at the at the other end of it too um, was super helpful, but being able to provide context around the activities and the logs that you're seeing for administrators and whether or not that is or is not suspicious or you know bad behavior. Yeah, and what I find is is that if I have to, uh, if I if I if I have a an IT person that I I typically have to train them into security and SOC skills. If I have a SOC person, I have to teach them you know enterprise IT skills. But, mm -hmm. you know, either way, you can become a really strong incident response person. Yeah, to your point about communication, I'll tell you one of the hardest times I had to communicate was, for some reason, one of the projects that we were working on, 
the project team didn't bring security into the last two weeks before it was supposed to go live. So then I was sitting down with the CFO to explain why this multi-million dollar application project was being delayed another four months because our team had never zero time to take a look at it, zero time to review, you know, technical capabilities or quality, you know, qualities. And all of a sudden this was supposed to alleviate like eight FTEs on his job count. So now I'm having to explain to him like why his million dollar project is stalled, why he now has to pay for all these full-time employees um, for another, you know, long-term duration that he was going to shift to other work and other priorities. And I've seen the same thing, Jack. I've seen 12 months of development work, you know, all almost get ruined by a 32nd OWASP top 10 code checker. Exactly. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Critical vulnerabilities. You pop, yeah. you're done. It's like the nightmare scenario, right? Um, I want to follow up on that question, though, and ask both of you guys. I want to flip it around a little bit. And because you were mentioning, you know, these, these CISOs and CIOs, um, say we've got some of those watching or some people who, who that's what they want to be. What is in your opinion, a top skill set for those particular positions. Um, how much of a responsibility should they have in terms of knowledge about how to communicate and how to understand what these highly technical teams are telling them? Ooh. Yeah. Dude, so the, the No, it's not that. It's just how do you say so okay, I'll put it this way. It's an old military saying. Um at least I learned it in the military. Hack is being able to tell somebody, you know, to go to hack and uh they look forward to the trip. And it's being able to stand in there and say, look, we got compromised and take the heat and that glare and that anger that you, I mean, sometimes you can visibly like see it or you can physically feel like almost a heat coming from them in their posture when you say, yeah, I know you spent like 7 million last year on a security, but you still got propped and you still lost this because of this one individual. You know, they screenshotted a bunch of stuff they shouldn't have because they were trying to be super helpful and it's like the third week into the job. You know, it's, it's hard to walk into that, those meetings and to explain things while being contextually relevant and realistic about who messed up where. One of the first things that I learned that was really important was to say, this account, because accounts can be compromised. You don't know, very difficult to put who was on the keyboard unless you have video cameras or somebody else there. You have to say with a level of, you know, um, assurance that, you know, that I, I believe that so-and-so was this, if you actually have to say that generally, I just stick to, we saw this account do this. We saw this account do that. These credentials with this little asterisk that these things can be compromised. This is, doesn't necessarily reflect the actions of this employee. Who is it? Who is it? It is tied to. And yeah, when it comes to learning those sizzle rolls, it's learning how to tell that type of information in a business way where they don't know about the compromises or the version updates or the technical aspects that do so in a meaningful way that people not only like understand it, but also like to speak to you. Cause you can also get shoved to the side too, if you're a little boring or long winded. <laughs> you know, I think one of the biggest problems with a CISO is, uh, is trust building. The CISO has to build trust with the rest of the C-level team. And then the CISO has to also build trust with his technical team. And, uh, and that can be a hard thing to do. Uh, one of my big recommendations is a lot of times you see a CISO as subordinate to the to a CTO office. And my biggest argument has been a CISO should be, you know, a direct report to a CEO. 
equal equal in power and almost separate than what the CTO office does. Um, and then my biggest advice to, to CISOs is, um, are you doing tabletop exercises with your security team under you and your executive team above you? It, and it's one of the hardest things to do with the C-level team because their time is so incredibly valuable and it's hard to get two hours of their time. But if they can practice these exercises and start building trust with the people that, uh, that are actually doing the work and, and securing the systems, then uh, they will understand post-incident when the IT team comes back with, you know, we need, we need to spend a million dollars on our security stack. At least, at least the, the executives will understand where they're coming from. And then, uh, you know, one more thing I think a CISO can do with a security team and a CTO can do with IT team is make sure their employees understand the business they're in. That I think that's the biggest thing that IT people lack is understanding the business. Yeah, on to your point. I mean, we talk about communication, but also I think it's understanding and looking for ways to take what needs to be communicated and understanding what needs to be, you know, the, the target of your communication to your audience. And what I mean by that is like getting an entire instant response team to understand what the business processes are, what are what are our, you know, our revenue generators, what are our cost leaders, what are our you know, what are the things that really make or break this company? And if something goes down, you know, is, is this a crown jewel or is this something that supports the crown jewel? Um, for those of you that might not know what that term is, crown jewels is, you know, the key components, the, the literal um, assets of your company that do directly influence your um, capability to make money and or, you know, whatever your processes that you're doing, your services that you're doing. Um, Point being, though, is understanding the, you don't necessarily need to tell the instant responders like, hey, we're going to be losing $2 million a day for X, Y, and Z and actually give them a technical breakout. And they, you know, but more so just, it's up there, guys. It's about like $200,000 a day if we go down. So keep that in mind when you're making these decisions. If we need to put in checks and balances as well for some of the remediation actions. Yeah. And I just think, you know, understanding the purpose of these systems and again, the business, you know, if I've got, if I've got one, one user screaming at me that the, uh, the HR information system is down and I got another user screaming at me that, that the, uh, I don't know that the, the CRM like Salesforce, you know, is down, you know, you have to understand which one is more important to have up, you know, you know, you know, which one makes money, which one makes customers feel confident and which one is a, is a last to restore. Yeah, and that's those are some of the soft skills that you get where you understand the risk matrix and not only are you able to communicate it, but you know who to communicate it to for the most effective, you know, activity or actions whenever things go wrong. Because I mean, it, it's, it can be a lot of stress. When things start breaking and you don't know why, like it can be a lot of stress. And on top of that, you get a lot of really powerful people involved very quickly. And when that happens, being able to keep calm, cool, collected, and anticipate where to look for information as well as communicate the ideals clearly. I mean, that's great for instant response, but then for the C-level, being able to have the, you know, the trust that you were talking about earlier, to calm the room and to give the technicians the floor when needed to explain things and trust them as well. Yeah. Um, I think that that's a very strong skill. Ooh, 
Gotcha. I'm not sure if it's on my end, but uh, I believe Catherine was muted for all that. Well, Jason, so what do you think? Uh, <laughs> we, I, I, can't, I cannot hear Catherine at all, but it's all right. What yeah, do you think um, when, when it comes to the instant response, particularly in the cloud and the um, issues that we've seen recently with the work from home push? Do are, are we at opposite ends here? Do you think that there's not much of a change from what they used to be doing? Or do you think that they really should take a look at the policy? Nope, you broke out on that one too now. Oh, I did too. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> Slowly we're dissolving. It's all right. Um, do you think do you think that we need to update instant response procedures for the cloud? Or do you think the old ones are okay, just new technology? You know, I think that they first of all, they should always be constantly updated, and that's just an incident response thing. But you know, actually this yeah. morning I was wondering the same thing. So I was I was actually digging into the cloud specific MITRE attack frameworks. And yeah, that's nice. And and you know, everything is almost there except for you know cloud infrastructure enumeration but that's just a different form of enumeration you know i think that that with our playbooks they need to be definitely more cloud focused right and i think that is you know you know can i detect when an unauthorized ec2 instance is spun up can i detect when an iam role is not acting normally Right. You know, I, I, I think that's where we're going to need some work because I, I, just, I just don't think it's 100 percent there yet. And then I think it's the practice. Right. I think most of us incident responders, especially the senior levels, have been in it 10, 15 years. So but the problem with that is we've been doing the same thing the same old way, you know. So, you know, if I want to capture packets, I, I take a, you know, I configure, configure a network tap port in a data center for on prem. Right. Yeah. Have I done that before in Azure or AWS or GCP? And do I mm -hmm. and do I know how to do it? And have I practiced it? Can I send that data to Splunk? Can I Does it already <laughs> exist? Is there something built in in the functionality? Because you know AWS or Azure and GCP, they might already you know, have it. Hey, turn this on. You can watch the NetFlow data. You know. And I think we have advantages in the cloud too. You know, especially with you know with focus I've had on AWS, you know, it's really neat that I can actually do a VPC tap. And if I think that I have a, you know, a C2 compromise, you know, I can say only forward DNS packets, you know, now I'm saving yeah. money, I'm saving time, I'm saving data, you know, so mm -hmm. I, I can specifically target what I'm forwarding. Whereas in a lot of times, I can't do that with on-prem. On-prem becomes much more, you have to get much more creative about the storage solutions and what type of data and what you are and are not capturing and you know, yeah, really that's get... the other thing. Yeah, I mean, you, you try try and do a packet capture of a very large company with on-prem resources. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm talking about multi gigabits per second, ten to forty gigabits mm -hmm. per second worth of traffic continuously. You're not going to be able to do it on a storage. You know, now think about it with AWS or Azure. You just configure an auto scaling policy, mm -hmm. and and if you're willing to pay for the storage, it's there for you processing is there but on top of that it's point and click for what type of traffic you want to grab what type of information what type of yeah you know uh and, and anything like that now having said that though 
I, I'm really big on automation in general when it comes to instant response, just because if you're going to do something once, you might as well automate it and repeat it. I think it's something that we can see happening more and more in the cloud where AWS and you know the other companies, they're, they're helping with the automation by ge already generating the logs into a centralized console. However, what when it comes to AWS, when it comes to all of them, really, um, part of it, I think also that is falling to security. I see a little more IT administration falling to security where you're putting in what seems like a version of old school controls, but it's to the new to help regulate and grow, you know, scale easily. So for example, AMIs, you know, where you only have these images to work from and the, and we only update these images, you know, talking about developers, things like that. Um, or you can only utilize these forms of traffic or route these forms of traffic, and they must have these types of controls. seems like we're rewriting the same book over again, doesn't it? You know, sometimes. Um, what, what gives me a little bit of hope, actually, is when, I, when you look at, like, the, uh, the, the Amazon Linux instance, where they, they've actually taken, if, if you know you're going to be in an AWS environment, you know, and, and, and you don't need a specific version of Linux, you can use that Linux and all those tools are already there for you, like Amazon inspect AWS inspector, you know, and all you gotta do is just turn these things on, you know, same thing in Azure, right? It, it's very easy to push out some, uh, some EDR agents via some, you know, good old IT automation skills. All right. I think I am, uh, I think I'm back guys. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Yeah. All right. Yep. Yeah. All right. Gotta love the uh, the live technical glitches. But uh, we are we are all set here. Um, a lot of people on YouTube asking. There's a, a great discussion. If you're looking for a book recommendation, a lot of our um, audience is posting book recommendations. But a lot of people are also asking, what are your number one book recommendations? Jack, we'll start with you. Uh, for cloud based. Oh, I don't really have one yet, unfortunately, for cloud. Um, haven't have not read one yet. If anyone's got a good one, I'd love to because. I don't know if it's just the technology's new or I haven't been paying attention to the space enough, but I've also been here. So I've been doing a lot of courses on, you know, our platform, um, the vendors themselves as well. Um, I would say that the, if you're talking about instant response, personally, I'm a sucker for um, practical uh, network security monitoring by Richard Bechlick. It was one of my first security books. And though it's very specific to network security monitoring, it does teach very well about the instant response process and alert triaging. Um, there's a couple others too. Windows internals is always good for fundamentals and understanding in depth the Windows stuff. But yeah, for instant response, I always love that book. Yeah, good stuff. All also, right, oh, uh, Cliff Stoll's, sorry, Cliff Stoll's Cuckoo's Nest. Yes. The first, docu the first documented instant response case happened back in the 80s of all things, and he had to invent technology on the fly for a, um, a big, long instant that actually ended up going to court. Yeah, that's a, that's a great recommendation. I've heard you talk about that book uh, before, Jack, and uh, it's I've actually heard a number of people talk about it. So if you haven't read it, pick that up. And you guys heard him. Jack uh, is ready for your cloud book recommendation. So send him in and use the hashtag INE Live or INE. Um, question for Jason, very similar, this coming in from Cyber Lola. What AWS security book would you recommend for us or AWS penetration testing book? Oh, gosh. And and, and I'm going to say pen testing is out of my area. I can't, I, I, I probably couldn't even hack a, a Windows XP box, you know, with the Hail Mary. 
<laughs> you know, no, no, I could, but but um, what I would say is is that there's a book I was going to mention before was it's it's Applied Incident Response from Steve Anson. I really love that book. Mm. And then what I would that do is, is once you mastered the incident response concepts, um, AWS has a very large incident response guide, and it runs you through the different use cases. It makes automation recommendations. It even gives you some sample code for your automation, like Jack was talking about a little bit ago. Um, and it talks about how how the the cloud is different from on prem when it comes to like the shared responsibility models. I uh, I really like you know our vendors are doing a good job with that. Well, it's not just a good job with that too. I mean, I believe that there's a quite a bit of that that shows up in your new course that's coming out soon. So I believe uh, next week we should, you're on the uh, eight. So it's incident handling, incident handling and response uh, processes and procedures. I can't remember the P part uh, for the AWS uh, cloud environment. And that will be a boot camp next week, as well as the course should be coming out either next week or the following. Yep. Um, yeah, I've been looking forward to that one. Actually, I, I want to see uh, I've seen some of the uh, previews in the clips, and it's really good, guys. <laughs> awesome. I want to get to a question real quick from Brandon McDonald. Um, this is really cool because another another neat feature of INE Live is that um, it's inspiring these chats, and so a lot of people giving some advice to Brandon. But um, I want to give you guys a chance to give him advice as well. Uh, hello, question for everyone in the chat. I'm self-teaching myself cloud computing, more on the security side, studying for the Google Digital Leader exam first have no degree, but plan on getting four more certifications afterward. Other than white papers, free code camp, A Cloud Guru, is there anything else I should consider when studying for certs? Anything I should do afterwards after achieving the certs? Do your best to work on projects in the actual cloud. Certifications are a, while they are a big part of, you know, saying on paper as part of your resume that I've accomplished this, I've accomplished that, experience comes from taking what you've learned through your certification process and then applying it. And in sometimes that involves, you know, you might fail a bunch of times and that's okay. That's where you're gaining the experience and you learn not to do it again. So I think that you're focusing a little too hard there on just certifications and, you know, being in the classroom and not enough on putting your hands on some projects and some, you know, hands-on training and some things that you can post, you know, maybe to GitHub or even just set up your own personal repo to build a service or something like that. What do you think, Jason? You know, I, I do think the training programs out there are great, including ours. Um, mm -hmm. What you have to look at though, is, is when you look at labs and doing things, you know, do the lab the first time, did you have a tough time doing it? And, and, and really self-reflect on that. You know, whether the answer is yes or no, do it again, do it a third time do it without the instructions or having to Google for solutions and then see how you can modify and improve on those. And, and yes, go into the cloud. You know, one of the things that uh, AWS has, most everything there is, is free for a certain period of time, you know, except for the, the, uh, the virtual machines. But if you stick to that T2 micro, it, it's, it's free or cheap. But the, again, yeah, the more project work, the more lab work, the more uh, self-guided work that you can do the more relevant and valuable it's going to be to you. Yeah, that's great advice, guys. And, and uh, thank you also to our audience who's weighing in with some good advice as well. Projects and labs, that's from BSEC. Nick Barker says, get some reps, right? Get those reps in and just do it. Practice, practice, practice. Um, 
One more quick question on this before we switch topics just for a second and then wrap up. But um, I, I wanted to ask this question from Alan because I think it's, uh, I think it's interesting. You'll both have a great um, perspective on this. Alan Cassio says, what tips would you like to give yourself to the me? What tips would you give yourself when you were first starting out in this, uh, in this career? Jason? Ooh, my career's gone so many different ways, it's hard. Um, See, I, I knew you would be a good one for this. That's why I said you um, guys have a unique perspective, right? What, what I would say is uh, spend more time developing the skills you know you don't have. Um, because we can get lost in doing the work. We can get lost in doing all of the, uh, the mundane things that we have in our jobs. So if there's something you want to learn and something that you want to skill into, create the time to do it. Personally, I um, I would like to say, you know, one thing is uh, get a better work-life balance to my younger self. Uh, a couple of years ago, I burnt myself out pretty hard, um, like very, very hard because I was, well, as I was leaving the military, I was very scared about entering the civilian workforce again. And as I was leaving, I was studying and doing, you know, training and uh, plus my full-time job, plus schooling. Mm. It's so much time that I burnt myself out and I had to, you know, downshift and it, it really did affect me. So I would say that, you know, find early on that work-life balance and study, that work-study life balance pretty well because it's not a finish line this learning this skill set is not you're never done and if you sprint the first entire mile you're not gonna you know be as strong for the last nine so just good work-life balance is what i'd say to my younger self and be around a bit more with the family that's a great answer both of them both of them yeah. thank you guys so much so much insight here um when it comes to to the cloud um but just really when it comes to your experience and your careers and everything that you guys have seen and and experienced and thank you for taking our audience questions i did want to pivot um take a take a hard left here um really quickly before we wrap up because something pretty major happened yesterday we're talking about uh today apple is launching the new iphone uh the new ios but at the same time a lot of people really since yesterday have been talking about this big pegasus vulnerability i just before we wrap up wanted to touch on that what's happening there and what what people need to know about the update that's coming out. Should they do it? Should they not do it? Should they wait? How vital is this and, and, and how vulnerable are people to this? Jack? So um, one thing to note is, yes, it's a security update. I think it covered, that security update covered, I want to say something like 40 vulnerabilities, some of which involve privilege escalation once you're on the device um, and remote code execution. So definitely you really want to update uh, the, if you have an affected operating system, uh, please update it. However, regarding the Pegasus group, so it is a group that targets specifically, or generally, I should say, um, journalists, journal, you know, individuals that speak, um, or I, I don't want to go into the politics too much because I know that that turns toxic so quick. Um, what I will say, though, is that it, whether the ethics behind it, basically, it targets a very specific group of individuals. So when it comes to your home applications and devices, the underlying issue of remote code execution is still something that is considerable and it is a risk. But at the same time, 
you shouldn't necessarily have to worry about being part targeted with the actual Pegasus malware. It's now part of the vulnerability and part of the issue is that there are times where you have clickless execution that's occurring on these devices. Some of the vulnerabilities cover it, but there's still a lot work, a lot of work to be done that come when it comes to identity management. For example, at no point should there really be remote code execution that's happening on the phone automatically from people outside of your contact group. That's a pretty basic thing that should be fixed. Um, Jason, your thoughts on it? No, I agree completely. You know, uh, I, I would say that you definitely want to take the update. You know, I, I wouldn't be, I personally am not too terribly concerned about Pegasus, Pegasus itself, but what I'm worried about is, is now that that, that barn door is open, that, uh, that other threat actors will take advantage of that, mm-hmm. that threat. I fully agree. Um, you know, and I, and I stick back on to, I was reading the uh, CrowdStrike uh, threat report that was released yesterday, you know, and we're still at the 68 percentage range that most people getting hacked is still through credential compromise, you, you know, so mm-hmm. I, I definitely, I would worry more about that than I would um, a vulnerability on your iPhone. You know? Yeah, uh, honestly, it's some of the precautions that you can take is, you know, utilize multiple passwords for each type of account. Um, utilize, set, establish MFA, especially for your important accounts, things that involve finance, money, um, even socials. If you have a particular brand that you're trying to, you know, um, engage with in your voice or your um, commentary is important. Uh, some other things, definitely on financials, always should always turn MFA on and make sure that the MFA that you're utilizing is something that you trust uh, or that can be trusted. Don't just use a, some random third party app. Do a little bit of research, see uh, see what the history is there. For it. Yep, totally agree. Great advice, great thoughts, guys. Uh, we are out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. That wraps up Tech Tuesday, our INE live stream. If you missed it live, look for the replay across our social channels and on the INE website. Jason, Jack, thanks so much for joining us to our audience. Uh, really appreciate those questions. Keep them coming. We appreciate it. You can look for us again live next Tuesday, September 21st at 1 p.m. Eastern on whatever social media platform you prefer. Have a great week.